0: Jane Bettel, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler. We talk about optimal outcomes and how to free yourself from conflict at work, at home, and in life. Hello, Jen. Thank you for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I am looking forward to our conversation, and I am intrigued by a couple of things that you talk about in your work. But before we get to that, please tell us a bit about how you've come to be where you are today professionally.
1: Well, I started my career at the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School where I learned all about getting to yes and how to create win-win solutions, principled negotiation. And I then worked at a couple of firms that are related to the program on negotiation. So Vantage Partners in Boston and also Mediation Works Incorporated and after a few years of teaching the getting to yes methodology all around the world, I decided that I was curious what I would have to say if I had five years or so to really dig into research and theory about intractable conflict. So I uh, went to go study with who many people consider to be the father of conflict resolution, Dr. Mort Deutsch, and to Columbia to go study with him in New York. And I was funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to study the role that humiliation and other difficult, challenging emotions play in exacerbating long-term conflict. And I came out of those five years knowing a lot more about how we Get ourselves stuck in long term conflict and still had the question, the main question on my mind was how can we get ourselves free from these self reinforcing conflict loops? And so I've now spent the last decade of my career studying, writing, and practicing with real graduate students at Columbia and also with real leaders in organizations of all kinds from corporate to global nonprofit, academic. And governmental institutions to help them solve some of the most challenging situations that they find themselves in, in their professional lives. And the optimal outcomes method that I write about in my book, and also that I work with on a regular basis with leaders is all about helping people really go from, if we can't solve this, how can we free ourselves from this situation instead? And that's what my work is all about.
0: Thank you for that wonderful, comprehensive tour. And I will pause to say those of you who are well-steeped in conflict resolution are going to recognize a couple of those references from Jen. Those of you who aren't, those are wonderful things to learn more about, ideas and persons who can help you get some other interesting perspectives on conflict. I will say, Jen, that jumping right in when I learned a bit about your work, the concept that intrigued me immediately. And it's central, I know, to your work, is this concept of conflict freedom. Start us off with a little bit more about that.
1: Well, to understand conflict freedom, I think we need to understand a l- just a little bit about conflict resolution. So, we've been in the last 40 years, close to now 50 years, in a real phase of the understanding that we can use principled win win negotiation skills to resolve. Conflict, And we've seen this happen on the international stage, the national conversation, in organizational settings, in community settings, even in the bedroom, you know, in families' homes, people using these amazing tools to resolve conflicts that are difficult. And I myself, as I told you, had started off my career teaching that methodology. And it works really well until it doesn't. hmm And there are a number of reasons for why it sometimes doesn't work. We could get into that. But to me, the more interesting question, rather than understanding exactly why it doesn't always work, is just acknowledging sometimes we can be stuck on what I call a conflict loop. And that is what... Mort Deutsch pointed out in his research in the early 1970s, that conflict often leads to more conflict. Usually it does. It leads to more conflict. And when we find ourselves stuck on that conflict loop, going around and around, having the same fight in different ways over and over and over again, whether it's about the dirty dishes left in the sink, or whether it's about, you know, the barking dog and the neighbor, or something on a more global scale, Black Lives Matter movement, or All Lives Matter, and kind of finding ourselves going back and forth on these issues, it's time to stop and take a pause and ask ourselves, rather than trying to resolve something that has really shown itself to be unresolvable, how could we free ourselves instead? And the one sentence answer is simply, do something different than you've done before. Take Mm pattern-breaking action. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to go back to something that you said. It just strikes me as confounding. If this idea, is it fair to call him one of your mentors?
1: Yes. Absolutely.
0: If he was finding this data way back in the seventies, why is it taking us so long to appreciate and acknowledge it?
1: Well, I think for a long time, what the amazing thing that came out of that research was, he said, conflict tends to lead to more conflict. Cooperation tends to lead to more cooperation So I think the work that came out of that was, well, then how can we cooperate more effectively Mm -hmm. with each other? What are the conditions under which cooperation is going to happen? How do we help people cooperate with each other more effectively? But nobody really did look at the question, as far as I know, how do we go from that conflict loop over to the cooperation loop when we're stuck on that conflict loop? So I think that's where the conversation about conflict resolution just kind of has self-reinforced itself all all of these years that <laughs> there's assumptions baked into that, right? That right. we that conflict is ultimately resolvable. And I right. guess what I'm questioning is that assumption. I'm yeah. saying it's not always resolvable, not in my experience anyway. Right. Yeah. And so you know my work is to bring a different set of vocabulary to this conversation so that we can acknowledge it's not always resolvable. And in that case, there is something else you can do, which is free yourself from that self-reinforcing conflict loop so that you get off that merry-go-round and stop going around and around and around. And it's actually not that complex to do. It actually is a pretty simple move you can make. And then, of course, it takes ongoing work, but it's not that complex.
0: Well, tell us about this move. I await with bated breath. This sounds very, very (laughs) positive. I love positive when we're talking about conflict.
1: Yeah. Well, the basic idea is whatever you've been doing, first of all, you've got to acknowledge what you've been doing. And I talk about four classic conflict habits. So first acknowledge which one of these four habits is the one that I've been using and which one of these four habits is the one that other people involved in my situation have been using. So we can identify what's the pattern we've gotten stuck in with each other. So if my, if I know that my default conflict habit is blame others, which in my case it happens to be, and I have a sense that your conflict habit or you and I have talked about it and you've taken, there's a quiz online people can take to find out what is your conflict habit. So if I, if we know that your conflict habit is shut down Mm -hmm. Then we can see that we're stuck in a blame shutdown loop I blame you you go away and hide and shut down till you you know the next time we have our, our next conversation I blame you you go away and shut down this is a very inefficient process we've got in, but it keeps us stuck in this loop yeah. so how can I break free from this loop I can't there's nothing I can ask you to do because I don't control you but I do have control over myself so the simple shift here is to ask myself, What can I do to free myself from this pattern? Simply do something different than Mm -hmm. I've been doing before. Well, I see I've been doing the same thing over and over and over again. I've been blaming you. Well, what else could I do? Basically not blame you. I could do almost anything else as long as it's basically a constructive thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it will help shift. Exactly. It will help shift that pattern. It will break, break the pattern.
0: It's partly just the fact that you need to break what has been happening. And then in in a sense, it's a one, two of break the pattern and then move on to something else.
1: Right. So it's simple to begin. And I will say what, what I then talk about is a pattern breaking path. So once we break the pattern, that's great. But the problem that comes up immediately that we'll notice is that because the pull on a conflict loop is so strong, we usually need something else to help us break free completely from the loop. And so that's something else is what I call our optimal outcome, which kind of is like a magnet that helps pull us out of that conflict loop. So we put a break in the loop by doing something different once. And then what we want to do is imagine what can I imagine in my best future imagination? What would I like to have happen in this situation? taking into account the reality of the other people that I'm facing, who they are with all their strengths and their limitations, who I am with all my own strengths and limitations, and any uh, boundaries in the situation or constraints in the situation. So taking into account the reality we're facing, but also what's the best thing I can imagine happening here, that will also help pull us out of the loop. And then finally, we want to design, test, and take a pattern-breaking path. And that, I can talk a bit more about what is a pattern-breaking path, but You know, it it involves a series of pattern-breaking actions ongoingly.
0: So, Jen, I was interested to hear a couple of times, very powerful word, reality. It seems that some conflict, I'll say management techniques, aren't necessarily based in individual instances of reality as much as an abstract tool that we hope will work. Tell us a bit more about reality.
1: Well, I built reality into how I define an optimal outcome because what I noticed in working with people in organizations is that very often they would either not think about what they wanted to have happen in a situation that they were in with others they would either not think about what they wanted to happen at all, they were just so stuck and focused looking backwards at, at who was to blame and what had gone wrong and, you know, woe is me. Or if they were thinking ahead, they would be pie-in-the-sky fantasy land dreaming yeah. about what they wanted to have happen. And as I noticed these two extremes that people brought themselves into. I thought there has to be a way to describe what it is that we're shooting for other than just that fantasy land. Mm -hmm. And I realized that what an optimal outcome in my mind really is, is this combination of your best imagined future and reality. And so, you know, I talk about the three different types of reality. I think the hardest, so the three being the reality of who other people are and not just what they care about. I think as mediators, as conflict professionals, we are taught to help other people consider what might be the interests of other people in their situation. And I think that that's been wonderful. And again, that's something that's been over the last 40, 50 years, we've really helped people and we've made a ton of headway. And I think a lot of people all around the world now do stop and often put themselves in other people's shoes and ask themselves, what would this person want? Why do they want it? And that's amazing and wonderful. And I think we need to keep going. And what we need to do is often ask ourselves, not only what are this person's interests, but who is this person? Who am I actually dealing with here? Mm strengths does this person bring to the table? And what limitations does this person have? I just got off, I was telling you, I just got off a call doing a mediation with a couple of founders of a company that's about to go public. And in that conversation, uh, I'm doing one-on-one conversations with each of them. In one of the one-on-one conversations, I said, I want to stop and just ask you, tell me more about what's the reality of who you're dealing with in this other person? Yes. What do you know about his strengths And what do you know about his weaknesses, (laughs) his liabilities, things that if you got him a coach, if you coached him, if you had your head of talent coaching him, he could improve and he could change and he could do things differently and better over the next six months, say. And how likely is that in your mind? And how much work is it going to take for him to get there? And is it worth it to you? And are Mm -hmm. you willing to expend that energy to help get him there? And is he willing to do that to get him there? Having those kinds of conversations with ourselves about who the other people are that we're dealing with. What are the things that may change, but may not about who other people are? And then equally as importantly, having that conversation with ourselves, which again is simple, but not necessarily easy to do.
0: And not necessarily fun. No. I don't
1: like all the time or no ever to confront what I'm not good at. Exactly. These conversations I make no mistake about it. This work is not for the faint of heart. This work takes courage to look at yourself in the mirror. It, and you know what? It even takes courage to look at other people in the mirror for who they really are, because especially when we're dealing with people who we love right. and we care about, whether we whether that's an intimate family relationship or a friend or colleague who's also a friend or simply a colleague. You know, we might really care about someone else and wish that they were some other way than they actually are. But the minute we can come face to face for ourselves with who they actually have shown themselves to be, that's when we can really start freeing ourselves from a situation that's just been like running up against a brick wall.
0: So, our first step, as I understand it, is acknowledging not every, as I'll phrase it, negative conflict is going to be resolvable. And yes. then we need to take a step of saying, okay, having acknowledged that, I need to stop doing exactly the same thing that I've been doing all this time. Yes. Then where do we go
1: next? So there are a few places you can go. And one of the most helpful, I think, is, to, uh, is the practice of mapping out the conflict. Okay. So once you've noticed what your habit is, have a sense of maybe what other people's habit who you're involved in in a situation might be and what pattern you've gotten stuck in with them. And then you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to try doing something different than I've done before. It can be very helpful to map out the situation. So what do I mean by mapping it out? Typically, when we're stuck in conflict, it can seem like a situation is very, very black and white, very simple, right? It's just me and you and the two of us are stuck. So mapping it out can help us see the complexity that actually does exist, and we're just not noticing it. And the beauty of being able to notice that complexity is that we can start to see nuances in the situation that offer levers for change that we were not aware of before. It's also a practice that helps raise our empathy for ourselves and for other people. We start to see influences, influencing factors in the situation that we never picked up on before that can give us empathy in a whole different kind of way than we've ever had the opportunity to have before. Now, having empathy in a new way for other people doesn't suddenly make the situation go away. It doesn't make whatever we've perceived their behavior to be, if we haven't liked their behavior, it doesn't erase all of that. But it, it can help us just at least understand why they've done what they've done, even if they're not aware of why they've been doing that.
0: Oh, that is interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah. This practice really provides people with a lot of insight in a very short amount of time. I've been having people do this, sometimes giving them literally two minutes wow. to start their map. And they will already have major light bulb moments of, you know, ahas going off. (laughs) Does the time pressure help? It may, it may. I've also had students take weeks to create their (laughs) map and they'll create seven different maps and wow, yeah, that can be helpful too.
0: So mapping, and I love the idea of bringing some analysis to the situation and whether that in and of itself brings down the heat a little bit.
1: Yes. So what you're, I think, pointing to is the idea that Typically, when we're stuck in conflict, we've been taught, again, this kind of conflict resolution frame has taught us to do, to fix, mm-hmm. to yes. solve it and figure it out, problem solve. And just the idea of stopping and noticing and thinking and pausing often is the pattern-breaking move in and of itself. hmm If you've been blame, 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 or shut down, shut down, shut down, or shaming when blaming my own self, or relentlessly seeking to collaborate with other people, even when other people are not cooperating back with you, if you've been doing any one of those things, just the fact of saying, okay, I'm going to sit down and take a pause and just notice what's going on here. And the way I'm going to do that is by mapping out who's involved and what are the various factors that are involved and creating a nice little map and you can make it as simple as you want, or as colorful and, and fanciful as you want. I've seen people put colors on their map and, you know, hearts and stars oh, and very good. a key.
0: I have to go back to a phrase that you used that struck me as so insightful. And I think it probably goes to a lot of the work you're doing and resisting almost this belief that we're going to solve everything no matter what. And that was relentlessly seeking collaboration. That's a paraphrase but, paraphrase, but I, the relentlessly, I heard that for sure, and seeking or trying to get collaboration. Do you get pushback from people who don't want to believe that it's unsolvable or unresolvable?
1: Well, I typically don't, and I will tell you why. Okay, Because by the time I have come to people and the, if they are someone who Tends to relentlessly seek to collaborate with other people, they know exactly what I'm talking about. You know who you are, (laughs) right? If you've got listeners and they know that they've been trying to collaborate with someone and that other person is either shutting down and not engaging or that other person is blaming them and not collaborating, you know what it feels like. And basically, it sucks. Yes. (laughs) It's really (laughs) unpleasant. Yes. Nobody likes to be trying to collaborate with someone else who's not responding the way we want them to. So, I, you know, mostly what I get is a look of utter recognition and, yep, I got it. That's me. It's also of the four conflict habits, uh, which are, you know, blame others, shame and blame myself, avoid others by shutting down or relentlessly collaborate with others. The relentlessly collaborate, I think, is one that people have the least trouble owning up to. Uh Uh-huh right? Because it, all it means is that you've learned what we've been teaching yes. <laughs> for, in this conflict resolution world <laughs> over the last 40 years, and you've internalized it, and you've gotten really, really great at it. And that, you know, that's nothing to be ashamed of.
0: But you're getting an A for effort and maybe something much
1: lower for results. Exactly. Exactly. The thing that's tying you up or getting you caught in a pickle is that you're continuing to use your strength even when it's not working for you mm-hmm. or anyone else.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk to us a bit more about this idea of patterns, uh, loops and patterns. And I imagine those two are not completely unrelated.
1: Right. So the way that a conflict loop gets created is by a pattern that is self-reinforcing. And that pattern is made up of habits. So I guess if you wanted to think about it like atoms and molecules, the, the habits are the atoms and the pattern is the molecule that gets created by those various different atoms. So- depending on how many people are involved in the situation that you are stuck in, each person's habits form with each other to form that pattern of interaction that keeps you stuck on the conflict loop.
0: It's both of you. This is not a one-way ticket. It is this idea of an ongoing interaction of some kind.
1: Yes. If you find that you are, if you can admit that you're Relentlessly seeking to collaborate with someone else. And every time you do, they kind of blame you back. Mm -hmm. That's what I would call a relentlessly collaborate blame pattern. Or if you find you're relentlessly collaborating with someone and they shut down, so you don't ever get the answer that you need or that you're looking for, they kind of avoid, avoid, avoid. So then you're stuck in a relentlessly collaborate shutdown pattern. And just noticing, like we were talking about before, just noticing the pattern is helpful in and of itself. Just the stopping and the pausing and the noticing can be a pattern-breaking act. No, like, for okay. example, if you've tended to relentlessly collaborate, if you're the one relentlessly collaborating, and you suddenly don't follow up your last conversation by offering someone option A, B, and C, and D, it'll shock them, right? Yes. They will be like, where is my friend? Why is this person? <laughs> Why are they not offering me options D, E, and F today, Absolutely. right? And that jolts them out of the conflict loop as well in a really helpful way.
0: Yes, I'm reminded of a situation quite a long time ago involving a family which had a shared asset of some value and also potential liability. And one person had been shouldering everything for years. And the most important thing I think that came out of our mediation was that this person said, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And it was astonishing. Yes. That can't be right. You've been doing everything forever. Right. Be right? Let me ask you, Jen, is it possible or common for one person to have more than one default approach as in, this is how I always start out interacting with this person or this type of person. And I have a different way of being with someone. I don't know if it's a different relationship, it's a different
1: rank, it's a different part of my life, or do we tend to have just one way that's us? That's such a great question. And here's what I'll say. My experience and the data that I've collected does show we typically have one default conflict uh-huh. habit and that that can be hard for us to admit to ourselves because we might like to think that when we're out in the world, we might act differently than we're at home or we might like to think vice versa. And I will say, well, first of all, we know context matters. right? So I know my default conflict habit, like I told you, is blame. I'm much more likely, however, to get caught up in a pattern where I'm doing the blaming in a family relationship than I am in a professional one. Right. But if I'm really honest with myself, I'll see that I'm doing the blaming. I may not be speaking the blame when I'm in a professional context, but in my head, <laughs> that blame might be going on. So it might powerful. come out in different ways. <laughs> uh, and I talk about that in the book, that context does matter. And when people get really honest with themselves, you'll start to see that your default will show up wherever you are because you're you, are you wherever yes. you go in the world. It is true that context matters.
0: Fascinating. And thank you for mentioning the book. We've just been able to skim the surface of what you have to say there. And I would ask you to tell listeners where they can learn more about you, contact you, find out more about the book.
1: Sure. Optimaloutcomesbook.com. You can find everything you need about the book. And then if you go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash resources, you'll find free PDFs that go along with each of the eight practices in the book and their worksheets basically to help you map out the conflict. There's some really cool online mapping software or a template to help you imagine your optimal outcome. So lots of fun, free stuff on there.
0: Oh, grand. I think that sounds like a wonderful place for all of us to explore. Thank you again, Jen. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much, Jane, for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please share it. Leave a rating or review. Subscribe through one of the major apps. For anyone new to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing is free. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.